We have the Reverend John Kraft with us today. Um, John is a native Memphian, uh, and he is presently the uh, campus minister uh, with Reform University Fellowship at Rhodes College here in Memphis. Um, prior to his calling at Rhodes, he served as an RUF intern at the University of Georgia, um, as campus minister at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. Uh, he's graduate of Vanderbilt University and of Covenant Theological Seminary. His wife, Lee, uh, is here today, and we're glad that you're with us. And uh, are your kids with us today? They're here? Okay. So welcome. We're glad that y'all are here. John, we're grateful for you being with us today. So please come and open God's Word to us. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks. It's a privilege again uh, to be here uh, this morning. And uh, I guess it's printed in your bulletins, but also if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Isaiah uh, chapter 8. And uh, just in case uh, one of the one of these, uh, this passage, there's a few verses in this passage that are very familiar to those of y'all um, who've kind of grown up in the church and around Christmas. And so in some ways, you might feel like, oh, he's, he's doing, bringing a Christmas sermon in. But as my wife and I, my wife would uh, love to have a Chris, you know, have radio stations play Christmas songs and have Hallmark play Christmas movies, like starting now. Uh, until the holidays. Um, I'm somebody who know not until Thanksgiving. And so that October, November, you know, I'm always worried about the Christmas creep that, that is coming in as we begin to like get in the holiday spirit. It seems like when college football just started. Um, so I'm not trying to uh, start the Christmas season already, but, uh, but these, this is a, one of a favorite passage of mine as we look at Isaiah this week. And then unfortunately, you're, you're going to have me next week as well as we look through Isaiah. Um, but uh, this is a passage that I think addresses um, our fears. And so uh, just to kind of set the context for this passage before I read it, um, here Judah is surrounded by the powerful empire of Syria and expecting them um, uh, to conquer them. And King Ahaz has gotten them into this mess by kind of unwise political maneuvering. Um, despite the advice of the prophet Isaiah, King Ahaz, the king of Judah, has decided, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to do uh, what I think is best for the country. And, and so both the king and the people of Judah have turned on the prophet Isaiah. And, and Isaiah and then his small amount of followers that are still be, be faithful to the prophet um, are anxious. And so the Lord here in this passage is going to address those fears, and I believe our fears as well. So let me pray and we'll read uh, God's word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us. And thank you for your word, Lord. I pray that this morning as we come um, uh, with all sorts of fears and anxieties, uh, as we bring them in here uh, today, as we try to not think about um, this next week coming up or the summer, Lord, I pray that uh, your words today would uh, ease our anxieties, would ease our fears, Lord, and more than anything, that your gospel would be known to our hearts, that we would be encouraged by your love and your grace to us. I pray this in your name. Amen. So we read Isaiah 8, verse 11. Uh, through nine seven, the Lord spoke thus to me with His strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, "Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear and let Him be your dread. And He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem." And many shall stumble on it, they shall fall and be broken, they shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel, 
from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every brute of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. It's the word of God. So we all have, I think, different fears in this life. Um, and, and like look, different kinds of phobias. Uh, that can be riding in airplanes. Uh, that can be snakes um, or spiders. Um, some people I know are scared of monkeys and clowns. Um, you know, that's, uh, that we constantly have these nightmares. Um, even, even for me, uh, as I'm approaching 40, I still have the nightmare of showing up to the test um, unprepared. I still have the nightmare of, of being, you know, at a school um, and, having, and having no clothes. Um, these kind of fears and phobias that keep happening to us. Um, but Isaiah 8 is not just talking about kind of our phobias, you know, and our fears, those things that, that kind of, uh, that really frighten us. You know, he's talking about universal fears, real fears. You know, the, the fear of death, the fear of losing someone we care about, the, the fear of no one really loving us, the fear of being alone, uh, the fear of parents never being there for us, for, for spouses never being there for us. Uh, for, for our children never being there for us. You know, the fear of failure, real fears. The fear of how to pay the bills next month. These things that cause us anxiety. And here Isaiah and his people are surrounded by Assyria and, and this great empire um, that has already conquered many nations and destroyed them. And there is real fear. And there's no real leader in sight. You know, King Ahaz has stupidly gotten them into this mess um, by not listening to Isaiah every time he tried to give him wise counsel from God. And Isaiah and his remaining followers in Judah are crying out, what about us? What about us, God? What about us? And how are we, um, you know, how are we to live surrounded by an army? How are we to live with this kind of anxiety, this fear of impending doom that we just have in our guts? You know, the real threat of death and pain all around us. This great anxiety, how are we supposed to live with this kind of fear? 
You know, and, and I think this is the question I believe everyone, whether you're a Christian or not, have to deal with. We all have to come face to face with the evil or fallenness of the world, including sometimes the, own evil, the, the evil that resides in us, our own evil. And when you begin to fear, when you, when you begin to experience kind of the brokenness of the world around you, we all begin to react. And I think this passage shows our different reactions. Um, and so, and, and there's four reactions I see in this passage, and we're going to kind of go through them quickly. Um, but I see denial, uh, I see superstition, I see escape, and then finally I see finding hope. So we're going to go through those four things very quickly. First, denial. And while explicitly, you know, while not explicitly in this passage, you know, the first cha- seven chapters of Isaiah have dealt with Israel's deni- denial that the nation is broken. Their denial that their leader and their nation are no longer listening to God's word or to God's wisdom. And, and this happens because we tend to deny the evil uh, in the world. You know, other world religions like Buddhism do this. They deny that evil exists. Um, but, but I'm not talking about people out there. I'm talking about us in here. And if you're a Christian in this room, I think we also begin often deny evil exists. We, we deny that there's a problem. You know, that, that, that ultimately, uh, that yes, we know we're sinners saved by grace, but ultimately, you know, we're good people. We're good. You know, my family's good. And, and everything is good when we secretly know that we still have sin among us, that we still have to come every week like we just did and confess our sin. When we know deep down that there's still dysfunction in our own hearts and in our, in our families and in our workplaces and in our world, that there's still brokenness still remains. And, you know, and, and I've known this and I, I've, I've seen in my own heart and my own self that going down different destructive paths in my life or seeing a friend go down destructive paths and simply kind of denying that it's there, denying that it's a real problem or, or it'll get worked out somehow without me having to do anything. Uh, you know, I always, I always remember when I think about denial, I always think about our old house in Chattanooga um, and, and we had this guest room um, in Chattanooga, and we from time to time would have guests actually use the guest room. But really what our guest room became, it was the room that we stuffed everything when people came over, or, or the room that we quickly used to clean the rest of our house. And, and there was a period of time, I think when we were starting to, we were having kids and we had young kids, where the guest room really just was this room of just where we put everything that we didn't want out in the house. Like where we put, you know, even time things that probably should be thrown away, we just would throw it all in the guest room. And it got to a point to where I just closed and locked the guest room door. And basically Lee and I just decided that that room did not exist anymore. Because we knew that as soon as we think about that room, the anxiety of we need to clean that up. Um, and, and of course, you know, her mom or my parents would come in town. We'd have to then realize, oh, we need to deal with this room. But it was just kind of the sense of denial you know, and I remember Lee for a while just would be like, don't even talk to me about that room. Don't even say, don't even talk about it. Let's just talk about it next week. Like, let's just act like it does not exist. And I feel like that's a sense in, in often what we do with our own hearts. And, and sometimes the brokenness that resides there. Or the things that have happened in our lives that are tragic or traumatic. And we just try to deny that they exist. We just kind of put them away because we don't want to deal with them. 
and they just kind of stay there. And we secretly know they're there, but we just don't want to talk about it. And, and so when people ask us, you know, how we're doing, oh, we're fine. Everything's fine. You know, we're good. We're good. And yet, we can't deny. And the Bible continue over and over again, and this passage shows us that something is wrong. That there's something wrong, that, that you could, you know, that, that I guess Judah could just act like there's not an army camped outside their walls surrounding them. That just act like it's just another day in the city. Uh, but that would be foolish, because of course there is an army out there. And they are wanting to conquer Judah. And, and so not only can we not deny that something's wrong, it, it also shows us, and Isaiah is showing us, why we need the church and why we need people in our lives. Because we need people to help get past our denial. You know, my Rhodes students, you know, are so high-functioning. They're, they're so good at academics, and oftentimes they're great athletes as well, and they have these great transcripts, and they're great at community service, that, that there's nothing they don't do well. And, and their high-functioning often allows them to deny that they're still broken. And that I've found as I mentioned Rhodes students uh, that the good news of the gospel is bad news, really bad for a minute, because they actually have to admit they need someone outside themselves. Because my Rhodes students, because they're doing stuff all the time, and they're doing it so well, they get to live in denial that they're broken, and, and that the world is broken, and that, that life sometimes is really hard. And so they kind of live in denial. So that's the first problem. Uh, that's the first way people deal with it, denial. And obviously, when we deny something happens, it does not actually fix the problem. It's still there. Uh, we're just kind of, you know, trying, you know, and, and it doesn't allow us to live in the real world. So that's the first one, denial. The second uh, way uh, that we deal with our fears and anxiety is superstition. Uh, or another way of saying superstition could be religion. You know, that we try to control evil, we try to control anxiety and our brokenness with kind of superstition or religion. Uh, when I was in Athens, Georgia, as an RNF intern, I was walking with the pastor and we ran into somebody at a printing store and, and my pastor is one of those people who always just talks, talks to anybody they meet and, and, and somehow has this gift of being able to get into deep conversations with them. Um, but we were just making copies, and all of a sudden, he was talking to this guy who believed in evil spirits. And to ward away the evil spirits, he put gargoyles, um, statues of gargoyles, on his bed to ward away the evil spirits. And, and, and this is something, and so as much as people mock kind of ancient culture, uh, this is very much still occurring today. You know, that people put all sorts of things around their beds to kind of ward off evil spirits. And we see this here in the passage in verse 19. Uh, it talks about people going to psychics and necromancers to speak to the dead in hopes that they can maybe get their fortune told or in hopes that they can get some sort of wisdom from the dead that will allow them to deal with the fact that there's this army outside their city and they're anxious. But yet, the God who already gives them signs earlier through Isaiah has already said and declared that this army outside will not destroy you. That though this army is out there, and, and it does cause fear, you do not have to worry. He's been doing that all throughout Isaiah, that the Assyrians will not be the ones that conquer you, Judah. You do not have to worry about Assyria. 
and yet they still want to go um, to these kind of superstitious witches, these necromancers. And, and I see this in my life all the time, you know, and we see it, this kind of superstition in dealing with fears. You know, things like not having a 13th floor on a building. You know, uh, uh, all of us most probably have lucky shirts or dresses or ties when we go to that first interview, when we go on that first date, uh, when we really want to make an impression. You know, we have that shirt that we always want to wear, or that outfit, because it just makes us feel better. It makes us feel like we're in a little bit of control. You know, there's, there's a place where we always sit when our favorite sports teams plays. You know, there's oftentimes, Lee will walk in and be like, why am I sitting there? Um, and I'm like, well, every time I've sat here, the Grizzlies have won for the last three weeks, so I'm going to sit here again. And that's the way I think. Or, you know, in high school, in basketball, um, I would always get a Dr. Pepper at halftime because I felt like if I got a Dr. Pepper at halftime, our team always won. And so that was like a routine I did. And we lost, of course, the one time I didn't get Dr. Pepper. And we do all these kind of rituals, often especially as sports watchers, because at the end of the day, we don't have control. And we want to have some sense of control. We want to feel like we can do something to help. We kind of, you know, because life is chaos. So we kind of try to put whatever controls in place we can. And so we we live life, and a lot of this is really great human wisdom. Uh, But we live life with all sorts of rules and routines. And, and for those of y'all who are parents in here, we obsess about how, you know, the things we can do. We just want, give, give us steps, God, to make our kids turn out okay. We just want rules. We want routines. We want things. You know, and, and, and often this is what our religion looks like. You know, it's just kind of another form of superstition. That I'm going to do something for God, and so then God will bless me. I'm going to give to God something and then uh, make him happy, and so then God will give me good stuff. And again, it's just a form of us trying to control God. You know, us giving to God things so that he'll give us things. And and I, I can see my perfectionism is often like this. That I'll perform hard, that I will work hard, that I'll do everything perfectly and right. And then everything in my life will be good. You know, everybody will see me the way they should see me. But at the end of the day, I've found I can never work hard enough. I I can never do enough so that everybody in the world likes me the way I want them to. That we can't, you know, at the end of the day, we cannot control everything and everyone. And we see the disaster this led to in Ahaz, in Isaiah, and in all of 2 Kings. You know, because Ahaz controls things by first making an unwise deal with the king of Assyria. He's like, no, I have this. I can control this great empire through my kind of wisdom and cunning. And then when he failed, he tries to gain control, not uh, by going to God, but pleasing the god Molech. A god who that he can do things for that promises to do things for him. And he promised, and he tries to please this God, Molech, even to the point of sacrificing his own son. Because that was the greatest service you could do to the God, Molech, in the ancient world, is sacrificing a child in your own. And so it is foolish when I believe that sitting in a certain place in my house or wearing a certain kind of outfit will allow the Grizzlies to win or my favorite sports team. 
But it's also foolish for us to continue to believe that we're in control of the world around us. And that if we just do the right thing all the time or have the right set of rules or the right things in place, that we can avoid tragedy, that we can avoid any kind of suffering, that we can eliminate anything to ever be fearful of in this broken world. Again, when we look at the fruit of the Spirit, the only time it mentions control as a virtue is self-control. It's controlling yourself. Not putting things in place to control others or to control the world outside of yourself. And many of us, I think, have been kind of fed the lie from culture uh, often that, you know, that if you're good, um, that life will not be hard. And that if you work hard, it will always be rewarded. That you can do anything. You know, and oftentimes, I think kind of Christian culture can be really bad about this. That they teach us that if we follow God well, we won't suffer. That we won't be hurt. And, you know, so when tragedy strikes, when suffering does occur in our lives, when we have trauma happen, you know, we either begin to feel that God is against us and we're in despair, or we're angry with God for not living up to that religious bargain he apparently made with us, whereas we do good things, he does good things for us. But, but Christianity isn't about that. Christianity isn't about appeasing an angry deity. It's about responding to what a loving God has done for you despite your brokenness. Ahaz, Ahaz's God, Molech, that he decided to worship instead of the God of the Bible, Ahaz's God, Molech, asks for child sacrifice. In the same way that many of your jobs and many other things in your life sometimes ask you to sacrifice your children. Well, the God of the Bible, he sacrifices his own son so that we can find peace. What a difference our God is. And pretty much every book of the Bible talks about suffering for the people of God. It talks realistically about this world that it is amazing and wonderful and good, but that it is also fallen and contains evil and is hard and is frustrating. And many of the most wonderful, holy, moral people I know are the ones that have suffered the most. And so no kind of superstition or kind of religious works can prevent tragedy or death can eliminate our fears. So if we can't deny brokenness, and if we can't work or perform our way out of it, or find the right rules to deal with our fears, well, what is left? Well, that's escape. And I see escape as being very prevalent in my life in dealing with fear. I'm all about escaping this world. And when there's kind of brokenness all around us, when we've had that hard week, we escape with all sorts of different things. You know, whether that be, you know, drugs and alcohol. You know, but, but then, and that's for a lot of my road students, but then we also escape through buying stuff. We escape through eating a lot of good food. We escape through, you know, movies, video games, sports, and even things like work. We try to escape the, the brokenness of the world by just getting really into our work. You know, all the time, because, because there's chaos at home. Because we feel rejected. 
You know, and this is my road students all the time. You know, I try to tell them as they often pat themselves on the back, uh, which, and, and they should, for working so hard and being able to get into roads. I'm also often telling them that often their grade point average is due to their escaping the chaos that's going on at home. And that we need to talk about that as well. And because it's very easy to escape into things. You know, and I think many people owe their GPA, owe their promotions, owe their salaries, you know, to the fact that they're wanting to escape their home life. And, you know, it, it, it often kind of depends on your mood. Uh, you know, sometimes people escape into positive directions. Some people escape into negative directions. Uh, you know, the, always the, the interesting thing for me, and of course I always refer back to my college years, uh, but seeing college students, and I had a couple college students you know, get broken up uh, with this, this semester uh, in people they had dated a while. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because one of them, you know, goes into control mode, which is like studying all the time, exercising all the time, you know, having a very diligent life, you know, escaping into all, escaping into kind of like routine and structure and performance to deal uh, with the fact that somebody, you know, had broken up with them. And then you have my other student who was kind of like out of a romantic comedy, you know, uh, you know, you know, basically lives in his dorm room. It's dark all the time, you know, eating cheese whiz and like whipped cream, you know, straight from the bottle, um, you know, kind of that romantic comedy scene and like just like, you know, strewn pizza boxes around his room and having to like, you know, you know, ask him out of it. And in both ways, while they, they look very different and the world might celebrate one, they both are trying to escape from the issue they had, which is somebody rejected them. And they're struggling with that. And really, escape, while it's, you know, number three on this list here, it's just another form of denial. That you are in pain and that you are hurting and that you have fear and that you have anxiety. And unfortunately, as we escape, it, it will just, it will lead ultimately to bitterness. You see verses 21 and 22 here, pictures this for us. A bitter people a broken people bitter against God. And they look to the earth. They look for something to escape into, something to satisfy them. But eventually they only see brokenness and discontent. Isaiah calls this a thick darkness. And Isaiah says there is no dawn. There is no bright spot here when we escape. It only leads to bitterness as the world cannot give us what we want. It cannot overcome that fear, that anxiety, that brokenness. And, and Christianity, here's the thing, Christianity calls us to enjoy life. It calls us to enjoy relationships, but not use them to escape from the world. And I look at my life, and while it's often subtle, I can, look at, I can see in my heart when things like movies, video games, sports, alcohol, you know, online shopping, I'm doing them because I'm getting things we need and I'm enjoying life with my friends and my family. And I'm just using them to escape of dealing with the reality of my life. You know, and, and often people want Christianity to kind of be this sort of, Justin kind of talked about this earlier in the worship service, that we want Christianity to kind of be super spiritual or, or kind of have this sort of Gnostic meaning in the world that it's just kind of all spiritual um, and that we want worship to kind of take us to this other place. But Christianity is actually the opposite. It's about real and living in this world. 
You know, not trying to escape the world, uh, but living in it, in the reality in which it is. And so worship is not really going somewhere else, but it's about bringing the truth and emotion, emotional reality of the gospel to our messed up world here and today. You know, it's about delighting in God's great grace in the midst of the brokenness and in the midst of our fears. Not about us going up to God, but God sending his Holy Spirit down to us. Worship is not about escaping the world, but glorifying God by enjoying the world and beginning to transform it and deal with its brokenness. So now we get to the question, how does God tell us to actually respond to the brokenness of the world? If we're not to deny it, you know, if we're not uh, to, to kind of try to work our way to change it, if we're not uh, to escape from it, what are we supposed to do? And God simply tells Isaiah and his followers in this passage to put their hope and trust in him. Not in their own actions, not in their own works, but in him. Uh, 8.13 says, Let him be your fear and dread. And basically saying, think of God as bigger than anything you fear and dread now. That, that Isaiah says he will wait for the Lord to act and he will hope in him. Well, why, why would Isaiah say that? He says that because of what the Lord has done in the past. Because Isaiah has seen and read about who God is. You know, even just earlier in Isaiah 6, you know, he was able to see God and who God really is. But, he, but also besides that, Isaiah knows the history of Israel and how God is a personal God who redeemed him and his ancestors. That he is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. And that he trusts that his present fear and anxiety about this Assyrian army and their struggling leader is not greater than the love of God for him and his people. The King Ahaz's weak and broken authority is not greater than God's just and wise authority. That though it doesn't seem like it, God is with him and his community. But the Isaiah does not stop there because God has given him a further word about the future. One not just of deliverance from Assyria, but more than that. Something really to put hope in. That God's people will one day have a king not like Ahaz but a great king who will bring deliverance. Isaiah and his remnant followers can trust that Assyria will not destroy Jerusalem. But long term, they can know a great king is coming to deliver God's people from all of their fears. Of course, this is what we celebrate at Christmas, this king coming. And many times in Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies about a Messiah, about Jesus. Here in 9.1, we get a clearer picture of this person that this person will come from Galilee, the area that the Assyrians presently have control over will be the place that Jesus is born. And it will be not just a great day for Judah, but a great day for all the nations. 9.4 says that this king's victory will be like Gideon against the Midianites, um, which we don't have time to get into that story, but y'all should go read it. And basically it's a victory that comes out of weakness. Out of weakness, but it will result in complete deliverance and eventual peace. Shalom, complete, complete well-being and blessing. And here we are seeing what Jesus has brought. You see, I have no philosoph- I was a philosophy major, but I have no philosophical answers for the fears 
that we've talked about. You know, what can help us deal with the fear of death and sickness? You know, our, our conscience and guilt over our own brokenness and our poor decisions. You know, the deep scars of abuse and betrayal that we still carry with us in our hearts. And the fear that this stuff will never go away. I don't know any other answer for this but Jesus. And who is Jesus? Look at his titles in 9.6. A wonderful counselor, someone who brings us wisdom, but without guilt or manipulation. His words are always right, and they never lead us astray. He guides us in this life and shows us how we should live. Mighty God. This means a hero, someone who fights your battles for you. You know, we know Jesus lived a life we could not live as our hero representative. You know, as David slew Goliath as a representative for all of Israel, Jesus slew our sin for us as our representative. He loves us, and he promises us eternal life with him so we can never fear the unknown of death. And it is amazing when we no longer fear death how free we can actually become. Everlasting Father, a Father forever, a Father that will never abandon you, A father that does not love you conditionally, but unconditionally. You know, he is not like the brokenness and dysfunction within all of our families. He's with us always. So that while we often fear loneliness and later come to realize that our parents or spouses or children will never be maybe what we want them to be, Jesus will always be more than we could ever imagine. He loves us more than we will ever understand or know. And he knows us, and he knows who we really are, and he loves us. And with him, we will never feel like orphans ever again. And this freedom can actually lead us to repair our relationships, to love our messed up families, to love people who have actually hurt us. It also says he's a prince of peace. That Jesus forgives you. That Jesus loves you. That there's no guilt with him. That he brings peace, not shame. Not guilt. He brings restoration to relationships. He brings shalom and peace to every area of our lives. So that we can actually begin to enjoy creation. And not use it to escape. With gospel freedom, we'll actually begin to bring shalom to peace to the earth. We'll actually begin to enjoy fellowship with friends, loving and serving those around us, and bringing peace wherever it is. Think about Isaiah here as we close. He was surrounded by certain death, and God told him short term he would be okay. But ultimately, one day, there would be a king who would bring deliverance. And that the small remnant of believers in Jerusalem, in Judah, would eventually become like one-fourth of the world's population. And that the people of God would not just be Jewish, but would come from every race, language, and culture, including all the countries presently oppressing Judah. That we would be finding peace here on a Sunday morning across the world in this strange language that haven't even been invented yet in English 2,700 years later. If you told Isaiah that, he would say, no, 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 that's too much. I wouldn't be able to imagine that. 
That's way more than I could ever hope about God's plan. And yet, here we are today, 2,700 years later, after these words have been written, and we have Jesus. But we still have no idea, no imagination for all the peace, the blessing that is coming. Despite all our fears, we have no idea about the future of the world, except that it will be better than we could ever imagine. You know, unlike Isaiah, we have the knowledge of what Jesus has done and is doing. So a couple falls ago on my kind of leadership retreat, uh, we watched a movie, and so always, you know, disclaimers with movies, um, Lars and the Real Girl. Um, it's rated PG, but it's kind of a strange movie. Um, but basically, you know, I watched it because I think the film does a great job of showing how the church and community helps a very awkward and broken young man who is dealing with all sorts of anxieties and fears about life. And at one point, the young man Lars is dealing with loss. And some people from his church come over to feed him. And, and he's very uncomfortable with this because they're just asking him to rest. To rest in kind of hope. And he asks them if there's something he should be doing, that he should be doing something, you know, because there's this loss and he needs to do something. He needs to, like, control in some way. He needs to change the situation. He needs to deal with this tragedy. You know, and one of the ladies from the church just says, no, what you need to do is sit down and rest and eat. And, and, and she goes on to say, you know, this is what church people do when tragedy strikes. We come over, we sit with people, we love them, and we bring casseroles. And, and these characters are not denial of the tragedy that has happened. They are not like, you know, Job's friends or, or other superstitious people trying to figure out what is God, what have they done to make God mad? They're not escaping from the tragedy. They're coming over and sitting with him and caring for him as other broken people in a broken world do when tragedy strikes. And this is love and this is fellowship. And, and I say that for y'all in here this morning who are presently suffering or who have deep scars of abuse. I pray that some of that pain can go away in this life. And, and I'm sorry that you are hurting. And I know that often the pain of this life and the traumas that have occurred to us feel like they will last forever. But God's word says it will not. Because our King Jesus is returning to restore all things. He's coming to wipe away all tears, to heal all old wounds, and to bring in a new earth where sadness and hurt and pain will be no more. And unlike the pain and the sadness and the brokenness we feel right now, which is temporary, this new world of complete joy and complete happiness, this shalom will be forever and ever and ever and ever. So that is where we can find hope. And that's what we can do with our fears. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love for us, Lord. I pray... Um, I just pray especially for those in here today who are just full of anxiety and full of fear and, and just full of hurt um, from what's happened to them recently, maybe from what's happened to them a long time ago, Lord. And I pray that, um, that not only your gospel would be made real to us this morning, Lord, that, uh, but at the same time this church would be made real to us, Lord, that the, the people in here 
and the fellowship and, and people coming around and loving us, loving each other um, at our points um, when we really struggle, Lord. And I pray that, um, uh, that all Christians everywhere, that all churches can be places, Lord, where people can come and be real and be loved and be served. And where we can find hope, Lord. I pray this in your name. Amen.